Okay, we're, as I say, to chapter 18. We're going to try and look at chapter 18 and 19 this morning, Lord willing. I've entitled the, the session really, The Intercession of Abraham. And I want to look at these chapters maybe from a slightly different perspective than we've done before. I, I've talked through the, the book of Genesis before, and you know, there's a lot of things that we can, we can look at and we can focus on in these uh, chapters. Um, but one of the things I really want to try and help us see this morning is that the Lord used Abraham to intercede in a very dramatic way. Um, and the Lord has been laying on our hearts as a, a fellowship and as individuals the, the need for prayer, the desire to pray for those that are not saved. Um, and it's not just a trivial thing. Uh, we start to see God working in all sorts of circumstances in around our lives and those of the ones of whom we've been praying, our loved ones and family and friends. Um, we'll see, again, the Lord give us a scriptural example of just how powerful and effective that can be this morning. So... Uh, that's where we're going to go. We're going to start, obviously, in chapter 18. So uh, if you want to read along in your Bibles, uh, verse 1 says, And the Lord appeared unto him, that's unto Abraham, in the plains of Mamre. Some translations will translate this um, by the terebinth tree and so on. There is a tree there, we'll see that. But it's in these areas of plains, that the, the, this open expanse um, near this place, Mamre. Uh, and he sat in the door, sorry, in the tent door in the heat of the day. Now we can appreciate that. Uh, maybe you know, a few weeks ago we'd have looked at this and not really understood it, but we've just gone through a, an incredible heat wave for this country, so we understand what the heat of the day is like. And Abraham sat there, probably just trying to keep cool, um, maybe just out of the, the, the sun in the shade a little bit, maybe. And we read in verse 2, And he lift up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. Now, this is really interesting because these aren't just any old visitors. We're going to find that this is the Lord and two angels that are coming to visit Abraham. But it's seemingly Abraham understands this. And what's incredible here is as we look, we read the very, very first verse there, and the Lord appeared to Abraham. You see, what we find is that God chose to present himself as a mortal. God chose to present himself effectively as a human being. Now that's quite interesting because we go to Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 and we read there, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. It's a statement that God, through Isaiah, gives us saying that he would appear as a child, as a son, as a mortal. And here we find an Old Testament example where God had done just that. Of course, we come to the New Testament, and of course, we're familiar with the reality that God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. But here God is appearing to Abraham. Now, this isn't the, the first time that this has happened. Abraham has already had an encounter with God before. The word in, in Hebrew is this raha. And, and we see it back in chapter 12, in chapter 30, verse 1, in chapter 17, verse 1 as well. And so now a third time, God seems to be appearing to Abraham in, in a far more real and tangible and physical way than probably most of us have yet experienced God. Now, it's interesting because we read that Abraham was called by God a friend. And God appears to him in this way. And again, we read that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and those three men stood by him. When he saw them, he ran to meet them. I mean, this is a kind of 99 or so year old man now, running. We've got a neighbor that I believe across the road is about 102, and he's always out doing his gardening, and he's always, he's a very sprightly individual. And he's now over 100. But Abraham here, as a, what we would consider a very old man, but he runs to meet them. Not quite sure how fast he was running, but nevertheless he was running. And then we read, he bowed down. This is the first time that in the, the Hebrew in the text, the word worship is actually used. That's the word behind bow down here that we have translated. Abraham worships them. It seemingly Abraham knows who it is that he's speaking to. It's just an interesting thought, interesting kind of question. You know, if God were to appear, would we recognize him? I know in, in Hebrews it speaks about angels and some of us have entertained angels unawares. And maybe there have been angels that we have encountered in our lives that we haven't realized that they were angels in human form. The Bible says that happens. 
But this is God himself. How intimate, how much do we know the Lord that we would recognize him as Abraham does here? And we notice that Abraham says, my Lord. Now, this is interesting as well because he doesn't address the angels. He immediately addresses this one character that's in the, cent- in the center or seemingly in the center. This is my Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight. Now, what a statement that is. Pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. See, Abraham is wanting fellowship. Abraham is in this position where God is coming to meet with him. And he's saying, Lord, stay with me. Stay here for a while. And he says, let a little water, I pray you, be fetched and wash your feet and rest your souls under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread and comfort you, comfort you your hearts. And after that, you shall pass on. For Therefore, are you come to your servant. And they said, do, so do as thou hast said. So, again, directs his response to God himself. And again, this idea of, of fellowship, this intimacy. You know, that question again, how much do we desire the presence of the Lord? Now, it's interesting here because there's five kind of acts of grace that we see here. And it's kind of spun around because it's Abraham offering these things to God, and yet these are the things that God gives to us. Firstly, he says, let me go and get some water. And he says, I pray, and be fetched, and wash your feet. And then he says, and rest under the tree. And I will fetch a, a morsel of bread. So he's going to go and get some, some bread baked and, and ready. And he says, and come for your hearts. And then after that, and then you can pass on. He's going to get, prepare a meal. We'll see the details of that meal in a second. But it's interesting when we look at all of these things because these things we find God does for us. You see, God offers a little water for washing. God washes us. The, the washing of the water by the word uh, we read of in Scripture. And we've been told in Scripture to come and rest under the tree, Calvary, the cross. You know, that's the place that we can only find rest. We can't find rest anywhere else. And again, there's enough bread to satisfy. Jesus' body was broken, that we would be healed, that we would be made complete. And again, through all of this, through Christ's sacrifice, through what he accomplished on that tree, we can comfort our hearts. And then we're ready to continue the journey. You know, the journey of life without those first four things is impossible. It's one of despair. It's one of tragedy. It's one of despondency, depression, everything. You you can't live, you can't go through life truly without that relationship with God, without coming to that place. And notice again, and I know I'm spinning this around the other way, but we have to come to the point of resting. Not doing things, resting in Christ Jesus. So many people get into religion and they try to do things, thinking that that's going to make them right with God, and it won't. There's nothing we can do that will make us right with God. See, God is offering us cleansing, rest of the tree, as I said, refreshment, comfort, and strength for our journey onward through life. Verse 6 says, And Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah, and said, uh, darling, I need you to do me a favor. We just some visitors arrived. You know that kind of situation? And Sarah says, yeah, I'm busy. Go away. You know? <laughs> no, make ready three measures of meal. Or find meal. Knead it and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran unto the herd. He's kind of doing a lot of running around. And fetch a calf, tender and good. I'll talk about this in a second. That This is the best quality you can get. And gave it to a young man. And he hastened to dress it. And he took butter and milk in the calf, which he had dressed and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. Now, again, the culture is very different from our kind of culture. Because Abraham kind of stands by where they eat. That was very much the way it was, that, that in that kind of culture at that time, and even today in the Middle East, very often when a meal is set before you, it's a feast, it's something that the host delights in giving you. They want you to enjoy it. You know, for us, a meal is kind of like a bit of a task, isn't it? It's kind of, it's something that we do, we tick off the list, then we go on to the next thing. You know, other cultures, it's not like that. You're, you're invited to sit down and take your time. I remember a story of an individual who, um, a friend of a friend who'd gone out to, uh, 
to China and the, a meal had been placed before them. And they ate all the food that was on the plate. And so the host came and brought more and put it on the plate. And they were a little bit full up by that point. I thought, okay, well, so they ate all of that too. And then the host brought some more and put it on the plate. And they thought, I really can't eat it. And it got to the point and they thought, oh, you're so rude. I'm just going to have to leave some of this food. And when they stopped eating, the host was pleased. The whole point was the host wanted to make sure they'd had enough. It's kind of the, the idea here. That this kind of satisfy, give them everything they need. And it really wasn't the occasion. Now, again, from a Jewish perspective, this is a real problem because we've got, we've got the butter and the, the milk here and we've got the meat. Effectively, we're getting kind of a cheeseburger, uh, which is being made here. Now, you may know that the Jews, because of their take on the law and their kind of, well, uh, what seemed to be by many is kind of a twisting of the law. You don't cook um, uh, a, a goat or a calf or in its mother's milk. And so the idea of the Jews, they have separate refrigerators and they keep all these things separate now. Uh, and uh, you can't buy certain things from the same counters. And yeah, there's lots of uh, requirements they place on this now. Um, but this is kind of a bit of an issue for them. Um, but nevertheless, this is, this is what Abraham's told to do. Now, the offering that, that Abraham gives, is in the Hebrew, it's a say as measure. Now, a measure is one-third of an ephah, or about a peck and a half, in case you were wondering. Okay? Let's just clear that up. So you now know uh, what a measure is. Uh, it's about a peck and a half. Now, you kind of you do the maths here. You can work out exactly what they're getting. But the Hebrew words that are used here are interesting because they're used to designate an exceptional character of flour, really pure, fine flour for the making of this bread. It's interesting because in Leviticus chapter 2, we find exactly the same thing in the meal offering. Now, that Leviticus will come later than this. Of course, we've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then one of Jacob's children will be Levi, and we go down to Egypt and Moses, and then we get the law established and the, the offerings and so on. And it will be at that point that God will specify the kind of flower. But it's all of these things actually speak of Jesus Christ, that perfection and so on. But here, again, a very high quality of flour. Uh, and really, the, the milk here is curdled milk. So effectively, it's like cheese that's being served up with this meal that Abraham's preparing. And that calf, again, uh, was a kind of a, a luxury, um, again, uh, high, highlighting Abraham's respect for these visitors that had come to, to dine with him. And it's interesting because in Chronicles 21, I'm sure you know this scripture, that, that situation where David had been uh, moved by his own pride to number Israel. The Lord had then um, basically offered um, a judgment of which type of judgment David could choose. David kind of decided to fall on the mercy of God and a plague comes upon Jerusalem. And the Lord stops it at this place, this threshing floor of Ornan, or Aruna is also uh, known as. And David decides that there he's going to build an altar to God. Uh, and offer the sacrifice to God there. Um, and he goes to Ornan and says, look, you know, please, this is a spot that the Lord has, has stopped this, this plague from spreading. You know, I want to take this place and, and offer something to the Lord. And Ornan says, take it, you're the king, have it. And David says, no. He says, but verily I will buy it for the full price. For I will not take that which is thine for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings without cost. Other translations kind of put it that, you know, I will not give to God that which costs me nothing. Abraham doing the same. He's taking the very best of the things that he has and giving it to God. And there's a real challenge for us in our relationship with God. You know, to give God the very, very best. I remember Oswald Chambers made the comment once saying that if it be just for five minutes, let it be done well. You know, on a Sunday here, we could... We don't, we don't need any of the equipment. We don't need the microphones. I can just, just stand and shout. You're probably all here. You know, we don't need to record. We don't need to have websites. We don't need any of those things necessarily. We don't need to come down and bring the books and the things that we do. We don't need to have the teas and coffees. But you know, we're doing this for the Lord. We want to do the best we can. We want to offer God the very best. And it's not about works. It's not that we have greater standing or favor with God because of any of those things. But when you love somebody, you want to do for them whatever you can. It's just a natural overflow. Nothing is, is too much trouble when you really, truly love someone. And that's the kind of relationship that David had with God. A real love for God. And yes, David made lots of mistakes. But here in this particular example, he makes it very clear, I'm not going to offer to God something that didn't cost me. 
You know, and really, our offerings to God should cost us everything and we should be willing to let it go. And of course, Abraham, in this example that we're looking at in Genesis 18, very clearly giving the best that he had. And they said unto him, where is Sarah, thy wife? Now, she was obviously in the kind of tents they had, not brick walls or anything else. She was just somewhere out the back cooking. And he said, behold, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah, thy wife, shall have a son. You know, just, just pause for a second, because Abraham has been kind of asking this question now for a little while, hasn't he? You know, he had God's promise way back in Ur of the Chaldees that God was going to make of him a, a fruitful nation and bless him and he was going to have descendants and through him and his descendants the whole world will be blessed. And he's asked that question, we saw it previously, about Eliezer of Damascus. He said, you know, Lord, I've only got this as my heir. This isn't surely what you had for me. You've promised me these blessings. You've promised me an inheritance and you've promised me the land. But, but who's it going to be given to? And God has already told him that he will have a son. And then, almost unsolicited, Abraham's just sat there. And the Lord comes in the Lord's timing and says, Abraham, you're going to have a son. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because all of the striving, all of that agony of heart that Abraham had gone through, when God gets to the right time, Abraham wasn't even necessarily sitting there. We don't even know whether he's pondering that at that particular time. But the Lord comes when the Lord's ready. I says, now I'm going to fulfill my promise. And what a lesson for us, because so often we, we seek things in life. You know, we may be praying for whatever. We might be praying for a husband or for a wife. We might be praying for children. We might be praying for all sorts of things. We might be praying, as we have been doing, for our loved ones to come to know the Lord. And we can come to that place of, of getting really quite stressed, over it, becoming anxious. And of course we're told we shouldn't be anxious, we should pray about everything, but nevertheless we're human, we do get anxious about things. But when the Lord is ready, at the Lord's timing, he just arrives. He says, Abraham, where's your wife? Guess what? You're going to have that son that I promised. And then we're told, and Sarah heard it in the door of the tent, um, which was behind him. Now again, only thin walls or such, it's just tent. And Abraham, sorry, now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So she's about 90 years old, Abraham 99 or so. You know, and, and clearly they'd come to the place where biologically, physically, there was no chance of them having children. They were not expecting this, this to happen now. And hence the reason we saw in the previous session, Sarah make this suggestion to Abraham about going into Hagar and raising up seed from, from Hagar. They were trying to find a solution to the problem. Verse 12 says, Therefore Sarah laughed within herself it doesn't say she laughed out loud she laughed within herself saying after I'm waxed old shall I have pleasure my lord being old also <laughs> it's like I'm way past the time of having children and even if I'm not <laughs> Abraham's get up and go has got up and gone and verse 13 and the lord said unto Abraham why did Sarah laugh not only she laughed within herself. Not only she laughed out loud. Abraham probably didn't hear it. Saying, shall I of a surety bear a child which I'm old? <laughs> Look at this, this statement. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life. And Sarah shall have a son. What a, a statement. You know, is there anything too hard for the Lord? It goes with that verse that I read this morning from Chronicles, doesn't it? The Lord can give you much more than this. Nothing's a problem to God. We make things so difficult sometimes because we don't trust God. Because we don't go to Him. And, you know, all what needless pain we bear because we do not carry everything to Him in prayer. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? You know, what are you facing right now? What's going on in your life? The Lord's arm is not shortened that it cannot save. God can still do whatever the Lord wants to do. There's nothing too hard. And then verse 15, Sarah denies saying, I, I didn't laugh. <laughs> Which just shows that she was listening to the conversation. For she was afraid. You see, not afraid necessarily for any other reason than she realized that God had seen into her heart. She laughed internally, isn't it? You know, 
laugh within herself. God has seen that. God sees inside. God sees the things that nobody else sees. He sees those thoughts, those feelings, those emotions. God knows us better than we know ourselves. And the incredible thing is that knowing all of that, that God still sent his son to the cross for us. You see, yeah, we might be able to try and make a case that you know, when people look at the outward uh, impression we try to give, we're not so bad after all. But you know, when we look at the heart, when we look at our own hearts, we realize we know what we're like. And Sarah realized that she was exposed here before God. And this, this, this argument, this conversation doesn't go on very long because Sarah denied saying, I laugh not. She was afraid. And he said, nay, you did laugh. End of conversation. God, God has the final word on that one. And the men rose up from thence and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to bring them on their way. So they get up, they've had their meal now. We don't know how long they spent together. Abraham just enjoying this fellowship, enjoying his time with God. And no doubt so excited now with this news. You're going to have a baby. You're going to have this son that's been promised. This son that for 25 years you've been now waiting for. In fact, longer than 25 years, no doubt. But for 25 years, that promise has been there from God. That's a long time to wait for God's promises to be fulfilled. But as we've said so many times, God is not in a hurry. We are often in a hurry. And the world in which we live is always in a hurry today. God is not. And at God's timing, when God's ready. I remember back at DCF, the church in Deal, uh, also known as Calvary Chapel Deal now, um, that I was served that for, for many years, uh, for about 20 or so years before coming down here. We, we started off, originally, we, we just met in homes. There was about 12 of us when we started meeting. Uh, and then we moved into um, a local school. And we stayed there for a little while. And we got to that point of thinking, well, now we're ready. Now God's going to bless us. You know, we just got to that point, we thought, really, God's going to do something. And Nothing significant happened. And then we, we moved from there into a community center. We thought, well, now, now's the time. Now, now everything's ready. We've got the facilities. We can do things. We, we can have youth clubs and all. We started doing those things. But, and then we moved from the small hall in this community center to the large hall. And, you know, we kept thinking, well, now, now's the time that God's going to bless us. And we can't, we started praying for our own building and kept thinking that the Lord was going to do something. And, and it never happened. And every time we kind of realized, oh, oh yeah, we had that to learn. And, we had that to learn. And then we went on and thinking that God's going to do something great. And all the time, God was doing things great. And often we were overlooking them and not seeing them. And you look back at that journey and you realize through that, that period of time, and for Abraham, through his 25 years, God was doing so much in that man. Things that took a long time for Abraham to come to that place of being ready. And he's found sitting, resting, effectively. Just sitting in the tent door. And you know, the Lord will bring us to the end of ourselves very often, at the end of all the labor, all the trying. And suddenly God does something miraculous. You know, for us back in Deal, my, my dad is the pastor there, started meeting with another minister who had a, another independent church, um, Bible-believing church. And they just met together for fellowship, just to pray together and, you know, study together. And we hadn't even been praying for this specific situation. But one morning, that minister just said to Dad, well, why don't you come in and take over the ministry of the church here? We've got a building. We've not got many people, but we've got some funds. We could do it up. And we moved into that building with over £20,000 in the bank, which was enough to refurbish and repair the roof. And we've got new carpet and new chairs. And it really was miraculous. But it was a time that we weren't striving for it. It was just like Abraham's here, sat at the tent door, you know, not chasing after the dream any longer, but just resting in the heat of the day. And the Lord comes and says, now I want to bless you. And the Lord does these things in our lives too. Did we read all of that? No, let's carry on. Where do we get to? Um, so the men rose up from there and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on their way. And the Lord said, now this is interesting, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? It's interesting because we're not told whom this conversation is with. Seemingly, the conversation is between the Lord, as it were, a a pre-incarnate version or representation of Jesus here, and God the Father. Shall I hide from Abraham the thing which I do? And you see, Abraham's God's friend. And God says, shall I show Abraham the things that I'm going to do? 
And he says, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. See, God's speaking of this relationship. The Lord's speaking of the relationship with Abraham. And look at this, for I know him. What a lovely statement to read. The Lord saying, I know Abraham. Well, you know what? The Lord said the same thing to each one of us. That we've been called by Jesus to come and follow him. In John 15, 15, it says, Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knows not what his Lord does. But I've called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. You see, Jesus says, I've asked the Father, and he said, yeah, go and tell him. Tell him what's going to happen. Tell him what I'm going to do. And the Lord has revealed to us what he's going to do. We read so much in the New Testament of what is to come. Not just on this earth in terms of God's wrath and God's judgment, but for us, the, the wonder that lay ahead. That one day we're going to be caught up together in the air. We're going to meet the Lord in the air. We're going to return back to the place that he's been preparing for us. That will be amazing. In fact, Paul says this is so incredible. We should use this constantly to comfort each other. When you have a bad day, remind each other that there will be a day. No more sickness, no more pain. You know, and remind each other of the new Jerusalem. How wonderful and incredible this place is going to be. God says, I know him. And that he will command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord and do justice and judgment. That the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. See, God just delights in blessing those who are his. And God says, shall I tell Abraham? And the answer to this clearly is yes, go on, tell him. Because this is what we're going to see And as I said, the verse in John 15, the Lord reveals what is to happen to those whom he calls friends. And we read in verse 20, and the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me. And if not, I will know. So God's saying that he's heard a report about what is going on. Of course, God knows everything. But someone has cried out. I wonder if that individual, that one who's cried out was Lot. We'll talk a bit more about Lot in a moment. But it may have been the Lot, because we read in the New Testament, that Lot was vexed. That his righteous soul was vexed, is what we read. That he was in this place, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but he knew that things weren't right. So maybe that cry had come from Lot. But either way, the Lord says, okay, I'm going to come and check this out. And said, so now... We read verse 21, I will go down now and see what they have done according, altogether according to the cry of it which is come unto me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom. So these two angels, we'll find out they're angels very clearly in a short while. They head off towards Sodom. But we read, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. They just stand together a little while longer. It's a lovely moment of fellowship that they're sharing. And Abraham drew near and said, Will that also destroy the righteous with the wicked? You see, Abraham's got a a real burning desire here to find what's going to happen because his nephew, Lot, is now living in Sodom. He's saying, God, what about the the righteous? Would you destroy them as well? And then they enter into this kind of typical Middle Eastern bargaining kind of thing. You, You may have been to... In the Middle East, you certainly have been to Israel. And, you know, if you go around some of those market stalls and you try and buy something... First of all, they'll, they'll, they'll offer you a really ridiculously high price. And then what you're supposed to do is go and offer them a really, really silly low price. And they go, oh, no, I have a family to feed and 20 children and I can't, I can't live on that. And, you know. and so then you kind of keep bargaining. You get to somewhere in the middle. And, you know, for our culture, that's not the way we do it. That's not the British way, is it? There's a price ticket and that's what we pay and that's it. We don't discuss. You know, and if somebody says, have a discount. <gasps> discount, really? You shouldn't ask for discount. That's, that's the kind of the way, but that's not the way it is in these cultures. And, and Abraham typically kind of entering into this kind of bargaining thing with God here. And he says, Lord, what if there's 50 righteous within the city? Would you destroy it and not spare the place for the 50 that are therein? And of course, we know where Abraham's going with this. He doesn't quite get there, but the Lord allows him to answer his question. And, and Abraham goes on and says, that be far from thee to do after this man and to slay the righteous with the wicked... And that the righteous should be as the wicked. 
That be far from thee, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Clearly Abraham knows who he's speaking to. He's speaking to the judge of all the earth. Who is the judge of all the earth? Who is the one whom the father has committed all judgment to? The son. That's whom Abraham is speaking to here. The second person of the Trinity, the son of God. It's interesting though that this brilliant statement, wonderful, and from a doctrinal point of view, very important, that God will do that which is right. The judge of all the earth will do that which is right. And God will not judge the righteous with the wicked. That is why when we get to the time of Babylon, God tells all those who want to be faithful to leave Jerusalem and go to Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar and so on, like Daniel and Ananiah, Azariah and Mishael and, and so on. You know, they are to leave so that God's wrath can come upon the city. Because God doesn't want to bring that wrath all the time the righteous are there. And it's exactly the same as we see when we get to the rapture of the church. Some people still have problems with that. And it amazes me because it's so clear in scripture. God is bringing his wrath on this world. It's one of the most written about subjects in all of scripture. God's judgment that is coming. But God is not going to leave the righteous here as well. God is going to remove the righteous so that he can bring his wrath upon this world. Verse 26, And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And verse 27 goes on, And Abraham answered and said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. He recognizes who he's speaking to again, which am dust and ashes. Her adventure. There shall lack five of the fifty righteous, five of the fifty righteous. Will thou destroy all the city for the lack of five? And he said, if I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. So Abraham doesn't really even answer the full, ask the full question, but the Lord responds graciously once again. Notice also, though, the, the attitude of Abraham in prayer. First of all, he comes, as we've seen already, before a righteous God, a God who is just, a God who is fair. And he's pleading for the righteous that are in Sodom and Gomorrah because of God's righteousness. That's the standard, first of all. Not because, Lord, I'd, I would really like you to do this, but Lord, because you are faithful, because you are just. Well, that's a great way to pray. To appeal, to appeal to God's own character. To appeal to the promises that God has already made. Because God is faithful. And notice now, the second plea. You see, often we focus on the numbers and everything else, but look at Abraham's heart in this. Because what does he say, that first part of verse 27 again? I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Which have but dust and ashes. What humility there is. And that's how we must come before the Lord. If we're to intercede for other people, firstly we intercede not on the basis of, Lord, I'd really, really like you to do me a favor here. You know, I've been really good this week and I got up and I read my Bible. That doesn't, that's not going to do it. Yes, we should read our Bible. We should be praying. All those things are good, but... That won't win the favor with God. Go to God on the basis of who he is. But come, as Abraham does here, come humbly before God. So God says, for 45 I'll not destroy it. And then we go on. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Per adventure there should be 40 found there. And he said, I'll not do it for the 40's sake. And verse 30, and he said unto him, oh, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. What's he doing? He's appealing to God for mercy. Not even that which is deserved, just mercy. Lord, please be merciful. Please don't be angry. For eventually there shall be 30 be found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold now, I've taken upon me to speak to the Lord. Again, just recognizing I don't deserve, I don't deserve an audience with God in the first place. The only reason that I have this audience with God is because of this visitor, because the second person of the Trinity has come and spoken to me. And that's the basis for which we pray. We come to God because of Jesus. We come to God the Father and we pray in Jesus' name. So the only reason Abraham has this opportunity is because God has come to him first. And the only reason we can go and pray is because God, in the person of Jesus Christ, came and has made a way for us to come that he is our advocate with the Father. For eventually there shall be 20 found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the 20's sake. 
And he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet this once. Interesting, because this has been a kind of a, a repeated petition, and we, we're told in Scripture that we should be fervent in prayer, we should keep praying. Jesus gives that example of the man that's woken at midnight, and through the persistence of the questioning, the man gets up and provides. And we're told that we should pray in that way, but there's also a place where we should know when to stop. I'm not saying we should stop praying, but this isn't a, a Abraham giving up at this point. Because he's saying, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet this once. In other words, what he's saying, I believe, here is, Lord, I'm going to trust you. You've given me your answers. He says, peradventure, ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the ten's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham. And Abraham returned unto his place. So, Abraham comes to that place of trusting. And that's the other part of intercessory prayer that is so, so important. It's not just that we keep on praying and praying and praying, but that we pray believing. You see, Abraham, I think, he doesn't get down to that, Lord, what happens if you just find one person? What happens if it's just Lot you find? He's kind of got his answer, hasn't he? God has already given him that answer. He doesn't need to ask the rest because... He recognizes what God is saying, and God is faithful. And Abraham returns to his place, I believe, with a real peace in his heart, knowing that God is going to answer his prayer. A real wonderful lessons for us in this. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 1 says, Run you to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and see now, and know, and seek in the broad places thereof, If you can find a man, if there be any that executes judgment, that seeks the truth, and I will pardon it. God getting ready to bring judgment, but is saying, look, isn't there anyone that is going to pray? Isn't there going to be anybody that will intercede? The Lord's saying, look, even if I find just one person, let me just find one man here. Now, of course, we know that just as with Solomon and Gomorrah as lots and the family, the daughters as we find were removed. So with Jerusalem, God does bring his judgment, but the righteous were taken first. And Ezekiel, another verse we're familiar with, we've mentioned this a number of times recently, that we read there, and I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Well, those are those situations. God looks for people that will intercede. God looks for people that will pray. And what about us? Has God called us to pray? Yes, he has. And God recently has laid upon our hearts the desire to pray for these loved ones that we've been praying for, for our family members that don't yet know him. Now, I want to take you through very quickly. This is not going to take long on chapter 19 and I'm not going to go through, there's whole loads of things we can cover here, but I want to show you the effect of the prayer. And we read they came two angels to Sodom at even. So again, these are the angels. These are the two visitors that we've just seen. They've come now to Sodom at even. And Lot sat in the gate. We'll talk about that in a second of Sodom. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them. And he bowed himself with his face to the ground. And they said, behold, now my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house and tarry all night and wash your feet and you shall rise up early and go on your ways. And they said, nay, but we will abide in the street all night. Now, this whole idea of sitting in the gate, Lot at this point has become a leader of the community, a judge, if you like, in the land, a council leader to, in our vernacular. The whole idea of the city gate was where the town council would meet. And Lot is sat there, and he becomes part of the welcoming committee as these individuals arrive, offer hospitality and so on. And we see a number of times in in Scripture this idea of the gates of the city. It's where legal transactions were conducted. There's a number of examples. You can look in Job, uh, Genesis 23, Ruth. uh, We see uh, a good example there of that. And of course, even in the New Testament, Jesus speaks about the gates of hell not prevailing against the church. We're not talking about physical gates. You're not going to be chased by gates. We're talking about the councils of hell. That's what that reference is to. But what we see from this is the law had very clearly integrated himself into society. He'd become a politician in a sense. Now, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I'm not going to pass judgment or comment on that specifically, other than to highlight the recent issues we've seen with Tim Farron. 
how hard it is for someone that has moral standing to become a judge over the unbelieving. And Tim Farron, I do genuinely feel for him, has gone through a very difficult time. And I'm, I praise God that he's made that decision to come out of, of, of politics or certainly come out of the leadership of uh, the Liberal Democrat Party because of his faith. And I'm glad he made that statement. He was pushed into a very difficult position. I, I think there's other ways he could have addressed that. And I think there's other things he could have said. But I wasn't in that position, so I'm not going to judge him for that. But what he has done is come around and said, you know, I can't lead a party because of my Christian faith. Because there's a conflict here. But a lot had got in that position. And clearly he was challenged, and yet he was in this position. But what happens when you're in that position? Well, society doesn't like you very much because what happens is you try and impose what you believe are the godly morals, laws, rules, whatever. Oh, and society doesn't like that, does it? We're told we have to be tolerant. And our views as Christians are intolerant. Have you ever noticed how intolerant people are when they say that we're not tolerant? You see, tolerance really is just a one-way thing. It means that we don't agree with what they agree with. Our views don't count. That's not tolerance at all. But clearly also that Lot had made little or no difference. There's another lesson there. Now, again, I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't be in politics. And, you know, we are to be light and salt in this world. And if that's what God calls an individual to, then we need to be praying for those people. But, you know, there's a a limit to the impacts we're going to have. And, you know, we need to be realistic as well because the Bible makes it very clear where society is going. I mean, Paul speaks to Timothy and tells that we're going to live in days where people become lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God and so on. You know the scriptures. That's where we are. We shouldn't be surprised at these things. And so we read verse 3, And he pressed upon them greatly, so this is Lot speaking to these two angels, and, and they turned in unto him and entered into his house. And he made them a feast, that was similar to Abraham, and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. These uh, two angels have had two nice meals in a very short space of time. But before they lay down, so when it gets dark in the evening, the men of the city, even the men of Solomon, compassed the house round, both old and young. This is everybody. All the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, in case you're not familiar with the King James vernacular, they wanted to indulge in immoral relationships, sexual relationships with these men. That's where the city of Sodom and Gomorrah had got to. That's the, the mindset that was now prevailing. It was a mindset that said that, you know, well, look, you can't judge. People should be free to do what they want to do. You know, if, if men want to wear skirts, then let them wear skirts. We talked about this earlier. You know, there shouldn't be any rules. There shouldn't be any, any laws that say we can't do this. That's just, just intolerant. That's where they got to. And look, to them, they thought this was right. They didn't see this as being abhorrent. They didn't see this as being something that was really bad. This was just liberty, liberation people free to do whatever they want to express themselves however they wanted and they said oh come on Lot you, know, you want to join in with us and Lot went out of the door unto them and shut the door after him and said I pray you brethren do not so wickedly oh that's a strong word isn't it do you see what Lot just did Lot just said that what they were doing was sinful we're not allowed to say that apparently today that was the whole thing with Tim Farron. People were asking Tim Farron his views on homosexuality. Do you think it's a sin? And he tried so long to avoid it. You know the question I'd throw back if that was me in that position? And again, this is the benefit of hindsight. But I'd ask the question, what do you mean by sin? You're asking, do I think that homosexuality is a sin? Well, what do you mean by sin? What is sin? You know, if you're asking me, is it something that I disapprove of? Well, to be honest, it really, that's not an issue. Because we all do things that we each would disapprove of, or we don't necessarily think that's the right way of doing something or whatever. That's not really very important. What is sin? Sin is rebellion against God. That's what sin is. Now, it's really simple. If you don't believe in God, why are you worried about sin? If there is no God, then why worry about me saying that something's a sin 
But if there is a God, if that God has created us, if that God has a plan, a, a best plan for humanity, then that plan is that we don't sin. And of course, as Tim Farron and many others have tried to do, he tried to talk, you know, well, you know, we're all sinners. And that's true, we are all sinners. Because we've all rebelled against God. And God's ideal for us is that none of us get involved in sin. Of whatever type. And sometimes within the church, we can make a, a big thing about homosexuality. But you know, it is a sin. And th- there is a misnomer sometimes that's put forward. And people say, well, all sins are the same. All sins are equal. It's not true. The number of scriptures that make that very clear. Jesus speaks about those who have the greater judgment, etc., etc. There's a number of scriptures that make it very clear that there is a degree or a level of sin. And, and even in Corinthians, Paul points out that people that sin sexually sin against their own body. It's, it's worse than certain other types of sins. It has a bigger impact and effect. And that can be all sorts of things. That can be any kind of immorality. But a lot here says, do not do so wickedly. And that's just that... Red rag to to a bull in a sense in this situation because immediately he says that he's now judging them. But you see what Lot's trying to do is to say, but there's the right and there's a wrong. There's God's way and there's your way. And that's not to say that you don't enjoy what you do. That's not to say that you don't think it's okay. But it's not about what we think. It's about God and God's rules and God's laws. And God made it so clear that in the beginning, he made man, as I've said already this morning, we were talking earlier. Man, Adam, originally was perfect, male and female in one. And God takes the male part, sorry, the female part out of Adam. And we have the male and the female. And God says that then, through marriage, the two come back together and become one. That's God's plan. That's God's ideal. And we can go off our own run and say, you know, I I don't accept that. Well, okay. You can reject God altogether. Well, then don't worry about sin. Until that day where you will stand before God and you will have to answer for everything you've thought, said, or done. This, though, is is just a bizarre thing. Verse 8. Behold, now I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you. And do you unto them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing. For therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. And we can't even begin to imagine the kind of mindset of Lot in making this statement. He's saying, look, I've got two daughters. If, if, if you know, rape them, do whatever you want to do to them. Is effectively what he's saying. And that, that, that's horrible, isn't it? One of the things that I think it, it does illustrate is the Lot's regard for these individuals. But certainly we can't approve of the suggestion he makes. A horrible suggestion. Maybe he, he made the suggestion because he knew that they would reject it. I don't know. I don't know. Verse 9, and they said, stand back. And they said again, this one fellow came in. And look what they're saying. This one fellow came in, sojourn, you just moved in. You weren't from here. Anyone needs be a judge. She's in the, now sitting in the, the gate. He's part of the council. And he's already now told them, well, you're, you're sinful. You're wicked. He said, what right do you have to judge us? Now we will deal worse with thee than with them. <laughs> so now they're after Lot. And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. But the men put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut the door. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. You know, there's something in that because there's a lot of people in this world that have been smitten with blindness and they are trying to find the door. They are trying to find the way. And I don't think I'm reading too much into this to say that there is, of course, only one door. There is only one way. And what people ultimately are looking for is acceptance. They're looking for love. They're looking for satisfaction. They're looking for peace. They're looking for joy. They're looking for all of these things. And they will try and find it in a relationship, whether that be homosexual, heterosexual, whatever. People will try and find that which they're looking for. But the problem is, as the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of those that believe not. And there are a load of people out there that are walking around, they are blind, and they cannot find the door. Well, you know what? We don't need to go out and judge and condemn them. We need to love them. We need to show the same love and compassion and mercy that God shows. Because it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. 
And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou any here besides son-in-law and their sons and their daughters? It's not saying, by the way, that he's got sons. The question is put to Lot, who have you got here? Who's related to you? Who's your family? Do you have son-in-laws? Have you got sons and daughters? And obviously they know the daughters, the daughters are there. And whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place. Get out, come away from this. For we will destroy this place because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. That's a, a worrying statement. But the reality is that time is running out. For people of this world, time is running out. Everybody will have to come to a place of decision regarding what they believe. And you may reject God. You may say, fine, I can live my own lifestyle. That's okay. But don't complain if I say it's sinful because my standard is God's standard. That's the standard I want to live by. If you don't believe in God, why should that worry you? It shouldn't worry you at all. And the men said unto Lot, has there any here besides son-in-law? Now again, these uh, son-in-laws we're going to see uh, in a moment, um, they were actually, the daughters weren't married to these individuals. But we'll see their attitude in a second. Again, uh, as Chuck Minister points out uh, in his commentary on the, this portion, also looking at Romans, he says that the real sin of Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't just the homosexuality, it was the public condoning of that which the Lord had forbidden. And that's the problem. You see, that we've got to a place in our culture where, as Isaiah says, that which is good is spoken of as evil, and that which is evil is spoken of as good. Christians who have, through the ages, set up hospitals and schools and all sorts of things to care for the sick and look after people and educate people through the history of the world. And yes, of course, there's some dark spots on the horizon when you talk about the Crusades, but that really wasn't anything to do with followers of Christ. When you look at what the church has done, it has brought such blessing to the world. And we're told now that the church is wrong for holding the beliefs we do. And Lot went out and spoke unto his sons-in-law's which married his daughters and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-laws. You see, they become so used to the culture. Oh, come on, don't be so silly. God wouldn't do that. God's a God of love. And how many churches, how many ministers now embrace these things? And they say, well, you know, maybe maybe God's changed his mind. Maybe that, you know. We've got to a society where even the church is, even the family He's going to go, well, no, God wouldn't do that. That's what his sons-in-laws thought. But we read, and when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot. Now this, again, this is the point I really want to get to. Going back to what we were speaking about Abraham, and really this is the point I want you to take away from this morning. The whole idea of this intercessory prayer. The Lord has called us to pray for those who are caught up in all sorts of things. Those whose eyes have been blinded and everything else. When the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot. You wouldn't think that would be necessary, would you, given the circumstance? You'd think if somebody's just said, in the morning, God is going to destroy this place, you think Lot will be up at the crack of dawn, his bag will be packed, he's saying, can we go? But they have to say, come on, Lot. Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, we know we've got loved ones who are lingering. There are people who will remain in this world that will refuse anything to do with God and they will get caught up in God's coming judgment. But we've been praying for a lot of people and I believe that God has already set apart for himself. I think that's why God is calling us to pray for them. We know from scripture that God will sanctify an unbelieving husband because of a believing wife. And I believe that God has set apart a number of people that we've been praying for already. But they're lingering, aren't they? They're kind of staying in the world. They don't really want to leave. They're not quite sure why. There's no really good reason to stay, but they're still there. And this is the bit that is the result I'm absolutely convinced of Abraham's intercessory prayer. Look at this. The men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters. So we've got these two angels, one daughter and the wife, and then we've got Lot and the other daughter, and the angels saying, come on. Let's get out of here. They literally drag them out. And notice what we're told. The Lord being merciful unto him. What was it Abraham had prayed? That God would be merciful. And they brought him forth and set him without the city. They bring him out of harm's way. 
We read though, and it came to pass that when they brought them forth abroad, that he said, "Escape for thy life! Look not behind thee, neither stay thou uh, in all the plain, except to the mountain, lest thou be consumed." Sorry, sorry. Um, uh, yeah, sorry. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. So, uh, get up to the mountains. Get out of the way. And this is just just. Lot said unto them, Oh, not so, my Lord. Behold now, thy servant has found grace in thy side, and thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast shown unto me in saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil overtake me. What was he thinking of? I don't know. And I die. The stupid thing is, he's going to end up in the mountain. But he decides he wants to still do things his own way. And, but now, this city is near. Flee unto it, as it is a little one. Oh, let me escape thither. Is it not a little one, and my soul shall live? So he chooses to go to a city, this place of Zoar that's, that's nearby. And he said unto him, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow the city um, for the which thou hast spoken. Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou become thither. You know, just as with, with Noah, Noah had to be on the ark, the door was shut. God shut the door before the rain came. God is the same all through scripture. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. Uh, so then we read that the sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain of the inhabitants uh, uh, of the ground. Uh, now, would we? No, no, let's go on. Sorry. Uh, <clears throat> overthrew the cities and the plain and all the inhabitants of those cities which uh, grew up on the ground. Now, it's really interesting. You go down to these places, to Zoar, to Solomon Gomorrah, you look at this area, um, and you've just got these kind of asphalt pits uh, there. And obviously, we, we know this is the area of the Dead Sea. Uh, there's nothing lives in the Dead Sea because of the salt content and everything else. Uh, it's very mineral rich. Um, but there was clearly uh, these great uh, slime and tar deposits uh, under the, the earth at this point. And there's all sorts of conjecture as to what actually happened. And it kind of, it's just conjecture. It doesn't really matter because God did what he did. But there really is some good scientific basis for this. And you've got these buildings that are literally covered in kind of brimstone and so on in this region, uh, at the southern end of the Dead Sea. And one of the suggestions, I'll, I'm not going to go labor this, but if you look in, I'll look at these notes, they'll be online later. Um, the, one of the suggestions is that this build-up of um, this gypsum and salt and bitumen and asphalt and everything else just got to the point that it just erupted kind of up into the air, and as it comes down, it rains down literally fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. There actually is real credible scientific basis behind what actually destroyed these cities. Now, of course, the timing and everything else, you have to say, is all God doing what he was doing. Um, but it just seems to be quite interesting. Now, just another aside... There's um, two individuals, one was a NASA scientist. Um, they looked at these catastrophes throughout the Old Testament and they noticed they occurred at regular intervals. And there's all sorts of interesting conjecture as to why these things took place. But what's fascinating is that God's control over all of these things. If you want to talk to more, more about that with me, I'd love to share. Or you can borrow, I've got the book, uh, it goes into detail about why these things occurred and the natural events that took place fulfilling supernatural uh, decrees from God. So just, just to throw a little teaser in there if you want to look at that a bit deeper. Verse 26, But his wife, back into Lot, looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, I, I don't know, I just studying this, praying through this as, as I was going through the week, I just get the feeling that she kind of almost just dropped to her knees, looking back at the city, just not wanting to leave. And he'd been at home now for some time, and she didn't want to go. Maybe she's, you know, sorry for the people she knew in the city and, and, and everything else. But, you know, we have to have that, that letting go of the things of this world. And unfortunately, she makes this decision to look back. I don't think it was just a casual glance over the shoulder, by the way. We read in Luke, but the same day lots, sort of the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. By the way, this is Jesus speaking. Jesus corroborates this as a real historical event. Even thus shall it be in the days when the Son of Man is revealed. So what happened before will happen again, as we've already said. In that day when he shall uh, be, uh, sorry, in that day when uh, he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. And then we just give her this little line, remember Lot's wife. You know, you shouldn't think about other people's wives, but this is one that Jesus says you should think about. 
Remember Lot's wife. Remember how she desired so much what had been her old life, the way things were. You know, there's lots of lessons we can draw out of that. Matthew, Jesus says, says, And now Capernaum, which are exalted unto heaven, shall we brought back down to hell? For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. That's an interesting verse. We could again explore that. Maybe we will at some future point. For the sake of time, let's move on. 1 John two fifteen to 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And by the way, let me just remind you of Lot's desire originally. He looked at this lovely, fertile crescent, this, this land that he wanted to go into. It was the lust of the eyes that made him choose it, and he ends up this journey down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, all those things is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world passes away in the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. Okay, let's just tear it out. And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord, and he looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and beheld, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as a smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham. This was in answer to prayer, as we've been saying. And sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. Please keep praying for these people we've been praying for. Because God will remember your prayers. Because Abraham was a friend of God. And you, Scripture says, are a friend of God. Abraham interceded humbly for these people. Because of God's character, we can keep doing the same. And the result, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. When he overthrew the cities in the which Lot dwelt. And Lot went up from Zoar and dwelt in the mountain. And his two daughters with him, for he feared to dwell in Zoar and dwelt in a cave, he and his two daughters. Okay. Lot sought to gain the world, ended up losing everything. Nothing left after all that he, he was aspiring to. Another bizarre bit, we'll just read this. And the firstborn said unto the younger, our father is old, and yet there's not a man in the earth to come in unto us after the manner of all the earth. That simply wasn't true. Abraham will send his servant to his brethren to find a bride for Isaac, rather than allow marriage, marriage to a Canaanite bride. Their statement is simply not true. Again, it's that challenge between sight and faith. Their current situation was dictating what they did, or how they should have just maybe waited and see what God would do in their lives. But come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with the father, and he perceived not when she lay down, nor when she arose. I think you'll agree, Lot must have been very drunk. But then the same thing happens the next night. It came to pass on the morrow that the firstborn said unto the younger, Behold, I lay yesternight with my father. Let us make him drink wine this night also, and go in. And lie with him that we may preserve the seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he perceived not when she lay down nor when she arose. And thus were both the daughters of Lot with child by their father. And the firstborn bare a son and called his name Moab. The same as the father of the Moabites unto this day. And the younger she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. The same as the father of the children of Ammon to this day and we look on a map and you see where they end up living of course Israel on the left hand side there bordering onto the Mediterranean you've got Ammon up the top there Moab uh, a little bit further down uh, just there and then obviously Edom the descendants of Esau uh, and then the Midianites below uh, looking a little bit closer you see when the tribes eventually enter the land uh, you've got the area of Ammon at the top and then actually just under that you have the area of Moab so where these descendants of Lot's daughters end up um, setting up, making their camp. And they become a constant problem to Israel, and we read lots about them through the rest of the Old Testament. Okay, we're there. Let's bow our hearts and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word reveals that you are a just God. You're a God who loves and delights in showing mercy. Oh, Father, there's lots we can think and draw out from this passage this morning. But, Father, we thank you that you're a God who hears and answers our prayers. And, Lord, just as Abraham interceded for Lot and as Lot was dragged out of that place, Father, we pray again this morning for those whom we love, 
who don't yet know you. We pray, Lord, that you would pull them out of this world. Oh, Lord, that they would escape the wrath to come, we pray. Father, we want to see you do a wonderful and mighty thing, Lord, just as you delivered Lot. And Lord, even if they're quite content in the world, Father, again, for these ones we've been praying, again, we lift them to you. You know each one by heart. You know them better than we know them. And Father, we pray, because you are a just God, because you delight in showing mercy, that you will bring salvation to these lives. Father, thank you for this lesson this morning. Impress it upon our hearts, we pray. Keep us growing in knowledge and grace, we ask. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.